0: The following program originally appeared on Tor.com and is being re-syndicated here by io9. The Geek's
1: Guide to the Galaxy. Hosted by John Joseph Adams and David Barr Kirtley. Hi, this is Dave. And this is John. And welcome to episode eight of Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. Today we'll be talking with author Blake Charlton. His first novel, Spellwright, about a dyslexic young wizard will be out on March 2nd from Tor Books. Uh, so today we'll be talking with Blake about how his love of fantasy literature helped him to overcome his own dyslexia. Um, in addition to being a novelist, he's currently a medical student at Stanford. Um, I think especially if you know any kids who are struggling with reading, I think you'll definitely want to listen to this interview. Um, and Blake is just a really nice guy. You know, John and I met him at Worldcon uh, a couple of years ago, and he just happened to be sitting next to us in the audience at a panel, and we got to talking. And, you know, we, we like him, and we hope his first book does really well. And we think that you'll like him, too, after listening to this interview. Uh, And so stick around after the interview, where John and I will be talking about magic and medicine and fiction. Um, But so now let's get to our interview.
2: All right, let's get Blake on the
0: phone.
1: Hello? Hi, this is Dave and John from Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. Gents, how is it? Good. Uh, So first of all, uh, could you tell us a little bit about growing up with dyslexia? Did you get diagnosed right away? And do you feel that the adults in your life handled your condition properly?
0: Yeah, so it's uh, kind of interesting. I was a member of what some of us call like Generation Zero, meaning that from the youngest age, people suspected uh, that we were uh, neurodivergent or neuroatypical. Uh, I got my testing when I was in first grade, which is pretty mind-boggling, amazing, and was really wonderful. Because everyone was able to diagnose me so quickly, I was immediately placed into a special ed classroom which has its pros and its cons and was very uh, formative in my world view but it did allow everyone to know very quickly what the problem was like some of the people I respect most in this world are people that have the same diagnosis that I had but uh, the diagnosis wasn't made until they were you know in their 20s or 30s and had uh, pretty much learned how to cope all by themselves so how do, how do you
1: experience dyslexia
0: so dyslexia is a really interesting uh, kind of condition it's not so much a disease as a condition it's a mismatch between kind of a mind and a language uh, the thing that really just Baked My Cookie, when I heard it was that in certain languages there are more dyslexics than in others. For example, and I, I might flub the exact statistics, but I believe there are one-third the number per capita of dyslexics in Italian-speaking populations than there are in English-speaking populations. Mm-hmm. And that has to do with the uh, the degeneracy of the phonetic code. Uh, if you want to think about English and the, the phoneme that makes a f- sound uh there are plenty of ways there are just a grotesque number of ways to encode for a <laughs> sound you could do it with an f which would be sensical you can do it with a ph which you might ar- argue is also uh sensible but you can also do it with an o-u-g-h like enough whereas i believe in italian you can only do it in f um photograph i believe is spelled with two f's
2: uh, were there any books in particular that really motivated you to keep reading despite uh, the difficulty
0: So, like, I wasn't reading. I could read stop signs. I could pretty much get along without being identified outside of the classroom. But inside of the classroom, I was in remedial level everything. And I could not read to myself. I was a huge fan of comic books, still am, and graphic novels. Um, I used to, I remember we went to Europe when I was younger, and uh, I was very much into the asterisks and obliques comic books and uh, I would buy them in French or Italian or, or whatever because I couldn't read the words anyway. Mm-hmm. You know, my parents really like are saints and they should both be canonized. What they did was they started to read to me. They, they It was like required. I had to be read to every night and they read in front of me and they picked wonderful, wonderful stories. And somewhere, you know, when I was around 10, my father started reading uh, the Robert Jordan books uh, around me and he noticed how excited I was, and uh, they would read a little less every night, uh, or he would suddenly, all of a sudden, his eyes would become too tired to go on at, like, the most like exciting part ever. And I was just sent into, like, these fits of agony, needing to know what happened. But he'd leave, uh, and he'd leave the book. And so, you know, science fiction and fantasy, fantasy first, really, really kind of saved me. I was not into school. I wanted to get out of school. I was the most obnoxious, angry little boy you ever saw. But within the, the space of a year, I was sneaking, you know, Robert Jordan, Robin Hobb, Tad Williams into a special ed study hall. And when I was supposed to be writing out all these spelling drills, I would uh, surreptitiously read, uh, you know, Ender's Game or uh, uh, um, The Eye of the World under my desk. It literally saved my life. Uh, well, at least my educational life. Uh, There was nothing my parents uh, were able to do that that had motivated me so much as this particular body of literature.
1: So how did you get interested in writing fiction?
0: So, you know, writing came to me very late. I was always, uh, I kind of just habitually was a storyteller. I remember being very young and I would ask my sister to uh, write down the things uh, uh, I came up with. And uh, she would sometimes do it and sometimes kind of pretend to do it because, you know, the scratch marks she mm-hmm. made on the page, I couldn't tell what they were anyway. But I, it, it was just kind of a habit. And it an only ever really – the idea of writing only ever came to me rather embarrassingly when I was like maybe a sophomore in high school. And I started writing for my high school's literary magazine. And I shudder to think if there are – I mean, thank <laughs> God the internet wasn't around then to immortalize <laughs> whatever I was writing – before writing Spellwright, your first novel, had you written other
1: novels or short stories or anything before starting? So one?
0: I had always I was always written for fun and for the closet. I wouldn't dare show it to anybody else. I was also like like I was the rabid premed you did not want to know in college. When I got into college, I was dead sure that I was an admission mistake. There was no other dyslexics I knew of at my college I thought I was gonna get kicked out so everything I did at school was was intensely practical I never took a creative writing course I never would have submitted any kind of creative writing to anything but uh, the dean of my college within I went to Yale University and within the university there are are separate colleges it's kinda like Hogwarts Hmm. but with a lot more beer Uh, the dean of my college was a good friend of mine and she and I, I had the the guts to show her a draft, and she said, oh, "You you just you have to you simply have to write this." And so, being kind of foolish, you know, being twenty one and thinking I had forever, and and you know, why not? You just write a book, and it gets published, right? I dove right in, and spell right was the was the first thing I ever wrote.
1: So so, how long was it from the time you first got the idea to the time the book actually is coming out?
0: Oh, t- uh, let's see. I began my junior year of college. And I was 21 at the time, and it will publish in the U.S. March 2nd, and I am now 30 years old. <laughs> uh, so it was, uh, it was, it's been a long, long haul. So, sir, sort of, that's sort of Lord of
1: the Rings uh, time scale there.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, more or less.
2: Okay, okay. So, why don't you tell us a little bit about uh, the plot of Spellright?
0: Spellright is uh, an epic fantasy, uh, coincidentally. Dyslexics don't usually do this, but sometimes when I'm nervous, I'll reverse the 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 phonemes for things, and so every once in a while I'll introduce I'll say, "Oh, it's a fantastic epic about dyslexia, mm. and everybody will just die. It's an epic fantasy about a world in which the like what's written on the page can be taken off of the page, and made physically real. And if you write the particular language down correctly and you cast uh, the sentences into the air, they will fold and do what you like, and that will be a spell. Uh, It might make something levitate, might bend enough light to make somebody invisible, but were you to put the letters down incorrectly or punctuate them incorrectly or construct them wrong, uh, it might fall apart, it might blow up, it might wrap around your neck, that would be a misspell. So in this world, people who can create these languages are very powerful, but people who misspell are exceedingly dangerous. And so the conceit it focuses around a young man who was so good at producing this language that he was once thought to be kind of important to uh, the destiny of these civilizations, one of prophecy. But he has this immense disability which has disqualified him from those considerings. and. The story is, in a lot of ways, the traditional, classic epic story. But the, in my opinion, what really the the, the part of it that allows me to kind of cook with grease and feel like I'm innovating is uh, it's really a struggle about a disability and 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 like how you come to terms with yourself and with other people about disability and what what it means about both yourself and the universe that disability exists, and uh, how you, how you come to cope with all of that.
1: I think that you got the idea while in biology class.
0: Oh yeah. So this is a this is a fun story. So I was a double major, tried to be in chemistry and English, and ended up going just with English because Yale's kind of snotty and only will ever give you one degree. But so I was taking a lot of biochem and organic chemistry. Organic chemistry is wonderful for people who have minds that like to think in three dimensions. And though I cannot spell, that is one of my fortes. And I loved organic chemistry. And we were learning a lot about how molecules have to create languages of their own. And specifically, the languages we spend most of our time thinking about are you know, nucleotides, which make up your DNA, and polypeptides, which make up your proteins, and the two kind of different properties of these two languages, how they govern themselves, how they can go wrong and cause diseases, such as cancer. And so I was spending a good amount of time in that regard, but I was also an English major, and I remember being in a really, really horribly boring uh, seminar on Shakespearean and Greek tragedy. And uh, at the time I wrote, I uh, still do sometimes if I hear a new word, I will write uh, in phonetic script uh, and so write out what, what the word sounds like rather than how I think it's actually spelled and later I'll go back and look it up. But there was another fellow in this class that we had kind of a rivalry going on. You know, uh, English majors out there will remember all the kind of the horrible didactic arguments uh, people would uh, break glances upon each other over. And uh, we both liked and didn't like each other. At least we respected each other. And at some point I'm writing down notes and he leans over and sees that I'm writing in this phonetic language and he taps it and he says, you know, wow, you know, you really did ride the short bus to school. And he's right, you know, for seven years I rode the short bus and you get teased. You hear every single possible word, retard, et cetera, et cetera, when you get off that uh, short bus every morning. And so I remember saying something stupid, something totally inane like, you know, like, yeah, tell me about it or just wait till you get an email from me or something like that. But in my mind, I, I had this insane image of peeling the words off of the page and kind of using them as a, uh, a boxing glove and just knocking them one right in the kisser. And I kind of I fumed about it and I was not at this time thinking, you know, gee, I'll write fan- like a fantasy about anything at any point. But then after the class, I, I remember walking around still kind of fuming and feeling like I don't belong here. You know, that guy, you know, he clearly is a Yale and I'm not. And how did I get here? And uh, if you've uh, ever stopped by New Haven, which is a lovely mm-hmm. town. You should check out Yale's architecture, which is modeled after the architecture of Cambridge and Oxford, uh, except for the singular advantage of cement, and they have rather spectacular gargoyles all over the place. And so, when I was walking around and kind of moping about, like the like fickleness of language—not just language that is written in English, which has this degenerate code and cannot be—you you you know, like it's so illogical and nonsensical. You know, thinking about uh, the universal code, where you translate uh, nucleotides into polypeptides and how it's degenerate and can go wrong and, you know, the kind of the connections, the the, the many different ways languages are important and error in language it, kind of all wrapped up within a university and with these strange gargoyles staring at me. In particular, the, the residential college I was a member of was Trumbull, which is a bit like Gryffindor. It's like the best college ever. Uh, has one gargoyle know, known as um, – it's in Potty Court because the gargoyle there is, is clearly sitting on a toilet. Mm-hmm. And I remember kind of staring at him and his – kind. Of, he was painted up, I think, like Spider-Man. They paint him every year. And all of a sudden, it just bloomed in my mind, this world where there was this kind of uber language or meta language that behaved not just like English and not just like nucleotides but kind of a combination for both.
1: In uh, actually, in this interview I read with you, you mentioned some really cool sounding elements of the story. I'm reading about constructs, textual extensions, and subtexts. Can you yeah, explain? yeah.
0: So um, one of uh, so let's say you you know uh, one of the very basic things you might do with a sentence would be to a magical sentence that is that you you put into the environment. You might you might just manipulate either the energy around you, change to the light, or just the matter around you, move things around. But if you got really good at combining these magical languages you could put them together in such a way that it would be kind of an existing uh spell that would be able to take in information move information around just you know uh, the, the two you know two fundamentally different languages one for m- moving energy and information and another for moving physical things again back to the same idea that there you know there's nucleotides for dna that store information in memory and and polypeptides for proteins that move things around. Well, you know, those those are things that make up living beings. Those are two magical languages that make up living beings. And couldn't you do the same if you had these magical languages? So, if you were really good at this language and you uh, at writing these things, if you were a really good author, you could make up a construct which would be uh, semi self aware, depending on how good you were. Entity that that you could write to do uh, what you want. You would give it uh, certain parameters and needs and wants and have it take care of your house or have it file uh, the books in your library or govern some other code. So that, that's the constructs. And the, the other aspect you're alluding to was, some, was an idea actually inspired by uh, Daniel Abraham, who, uh, whose books um, I think are really, it's just a crying shame not everyone's read The Long Price Quartet because they're so brilliant. I kind of met him and was like babbling away in a fanboy way at mm-hmm. him at uh, Worldcon in Anaheim. I forget when that was, 06 maybe. And I was telling him about this and he said, you know, well, so, you know, you can, uh, you can affect energy, like, w- you know, could you, like, how would a human mind interact with these texts? And, and it just added this idea of what I call quaternary cognition. Which is, you know, the, the, the text that, that affect energy, if you're, if you're really good at it, you can write them in such a way that they interact with your mind. So you can actually write larger aspects of an author's mind and you can think thoughts with this auxiliary uh, textual mind in combination with your organic brain uh, that would be unthinkable otherwise. And the the way they couch it in this world, you know, they say quaternary thoughts are 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 thoughts. You know, you you cast this spell upon yourself, and you can think previously unthinkable thoughts. I I can't really go into what exactly those unthinkable thoughts are without without spoiling. But it it was just you know, and I owe Daniel tremendously for the inspiration, and it was it was it was a godsend.
2: Do you think that uh, with the sort of rise of fiction podcasts and the popularity of audiobooks now, that that's a way that uh, kids who or struggling with dyslexia can sort of start to overcome that?
0: Oh, I think it's fantastic and wonderful, and I believe Scott Westerfeld. I don't know if he wrote it or pointed to it, but it was a blog that pointed out that listening to an audiobook now has gained some amount of credence as as a valid form of reading back when when I was young, we had mostly um, you could buy the private tapes, but there was also a service called Recording for the Blind. Um, that was uh, also available to those of us with dyslexia, and it was a wonderful resource for us all. And the fact that now you can download it, and you know, right now I have probably fifty or sixty audiobooks on my iPhone. I think audio media uh, is is not just relevant to the uh, neurodivergent. I think it's it's useful for all kinds of kids. You know, I think if if you prefer to hear fiction spoken, I, I don't think there should be any embargo on that, especially considering that for most of history, reading was a social act. You, uh, you know, one person could read in a particular social environment and you would, you would listen to them read out loud. Uh, reading in private has really been kind of uh, an early modern and modern invention. So how did you get interested in medicine and what sort of medicine do you study? So, both of my parents are psychiatrists, which is one of the reasons I'm very strange. Hmm. They're both lovely people. Psychiatrists are lovely people. But they uh, they say funny things and they and they view human beings kind of in a, in a way that kind of takes some getting used to if you're from outside of the uh, the tribe of psychiatrists. Uh, so I had always, you know, and they had brought me up, you know, telling me, you know, you can do whatever you like, Blake, but medicine is wonderful for all these reasons. You get to help people and, you know, you get to, there's a scientific part of things, there's an artistic component of it, et cetera, et cetera. So in my mind, I had always had the idea of medicine. That said, I, you know, when I started writing for the first time, I was, as I mentioned before, I was the like obnoxious, rabid pre-med uh, as an undergraduate. Like I, I just studied, I spent way too much time the library and, and memorized things I didn't need to memorize. And I, um, it, it was bad. And I mentioned the Dean of Trumbull College, Laura King. Uh, dean King pulled me aside and helped me kind of Get away from the kind of the rat pack of – or wolf pack, I should say, of rabid premeds and, and start to write. So for a, for about five years there, when I first started writing Spellwright rather naively thinking, I'd just write a book and get it published, I just – I left the fold. Um, I, I finished all my uh, premedical requirements and I just chased – uh, this dream of becoming a novelist. And I, as many people do, I would rapidly run out of money um, and would have to take uh, some kind of work and then keep writing and then run out of money. And I, I accrued, like a lot of people, a lot of very interesting jobs. I, was, uh, I used to drive people to the airport as kind of a gypsy taxi service for my neighborhood. I would clean out gutters. I would take contract work as a technical writer for UCSF. And for uh, Stanford Pediatrics, and then I, I became a boarding school teacher in the Northeast. I was a football coach. You know, wherever the wind would blow you and allow you to write for the longest time, I was pretty happy with that life. And then my father got very sick. He has a very rare form of cancer called angiosarcoma. And most of the time when you're diagnosed with it, you you know, I think the average life expectancy is like four months. It's, it's a very scary cancer. My father's very fortunate that he had it uh, in his skin on his chest. And cutaneous angiosarcoma is rare as legs on a fish. And so I came, uh, you know, my father and I, we, we weren't on the best terms. But it, it was terrifying so i came back from the east coast and was close to him and tried and helped him to the best of the extent that i could and uh you know we, after all the surgeries and the chemotherapies uh, they kept pushing his expectation back and Going through this whole process and seeing how what a boon a wonderful physician was, and how kind of what a curse a a bad physician was, and how like physicians really can add to misery. And all healthcare workers can be both a boon and can kind of increase the anxiety and and pain of disease. It was then, you know, I I thought, you know, I, I felt the calling for the first time. I thought, yeah. I have to come back to this, right? Like for so long I wanted this and there are physicians who write and and there's got to be some way I can pursue both. And the reason uh, I ended up at Stanford was not just simply because it's close to my family, although it is, and that's wonderful, but because Stanford is very supportive of my aspirations of being both a physician and a writer and a novelist. And I have two wonderful mentors here who um, are very well-known novelists in their uh, particular genres. So Stanford really has given me guidance from my mentors, but also um, I'm currently I've completed the first two years of medical school and now I'm on a fellowship uh, in which I am forgiven tuition, but I am enrolled in which they are allowing me to kind of finish up uh, this phase of my writing career. So I don't really have a specialty. That was, I think, the original question. I don't have a specialty yet. I have to do about a year and a half worth of clinical training, and then I have to apply to an internship and a residency. What I go into changes. If you ask me tomorrow, I might say something different. But now I'm most interested in general internal medicine and uh, general pediatrics.
2: How much can I get for a kidney on the black market, (laughs) do you think? (laughs)
0: Uh, I think it's uh, twenty to thirty years in jail. Oh, okay.
2: Well,
1: that, that's not, <laughs> not what
0: I was really. I wouldn't know. <laughs> what if
1: it's like a two for one sale?
0: Well, you could divide the kidney, you know, and then try because you can do. We can do partial implants now.
2: Okay. Uh, well, has uh, studying medicine affected your writing at all?
0: Oh, most definitely. In fact, uh, John, the story you bought from me and *The symbiont, which uh, you ran in your anthology *Seeds of Change*. Uh, was inspired by a neurobiology and neuroscience class I was taking and my encounters with an older patient who had survived cancer and some younger patients that, you know, rather tragically were, were combating pediatric cancers.
2: How often are you called on to stab a syringe of adrenaline directly into somebody's heart? Is that like once a week or?
0: You know, that that's only <laughs> just that one time at uh, World Fantasy Con
2: <laughs>
0: and it was, you had H1N1 and we were really worried about you. <laughs>
2: Now, your full name is Blake Randolph Charlton. Yeah. Couldn't your parents have come up with a more pretentious-sounding name?
0: <laughs> uh, well, it's, uh, it, they could have. In fact, they, it was all in the hopper. I, I narrowly avoided becoming Randolph Seville Charlton the <laughs> third. Whoa. It's not, you know, that makes it sound like we were, like, hanging out in our estates in <laughs> Cheshire or something before we came across to America, but on my father's <laughs> side... Uh, we come off of the bayou in Louisiana. Um, if you had heard my grandfather speak, you wouldn't have been able to understand much of what he was saying.
2: And even with without the Randolph in there, uh, people still tend to assume your name is a pseudonym, right?
0: Yeah. So when uh so I had written Spell and uh gotten an agent and I was twenty five, so that was five years from uh start to acquiring an agent. Uh, The fellow who ended up being my editor over at Tor called me up and he said, you know, uh, now don't be offended Mm -hmm. uh, because, uh, you know, people do this all the time. But Blake Charlton can't really be your name, can it? Mm
2: -hmm.
0: And uh, yeah, yeah, that was uh, not me. And he was thrilled because, you know, Blake Charlton, it's very memorable. And it's uh, apparently this is terribly important. It's early on in the alphabet. Mm. Uh, and so my books will be placed. Uh, you, know, uh, you know, people start scanning, I suppose, at A and start going down, and they they usually get to C. So he was ecstatic with the name, which I, which we all in my family thought was pretty hilarious.
1: Yeah, I've heard that authors whose last names start with A, B, or C sell twenty percent better or something on average than than other authors.
0: Which just sounds insane. <laughs> and and does that mean we're everyone's going to have to change their name to, you know? Yeah, Alan you, Cadabra or something. You know, um, Garth Nix is another
1: author whose name just sounds like it couldn't <laughs> possibly be his real name. It's right. Such a perfect name for a fantasy writer. I actually had a student one one year who wanted to be a fantasy writer whose name was Lindsay Dragon. <laughs> and, uh, she actually asked one of the guests, "You know, should I should I use the pseudonym because people are just going to think my name is this this dumb pseudonym?" Awesome. Uh, so you mentioned reading Tad Williams. Um, yeah. when you were in school, and and I understand now that you're good friends with Tad
0: Williams, and that you guys met playing basketball. was that yeah? Great story there. Um, and uh, I I will tell you my version, and I I'm 100 <laughs> percent I'm sure Tad will tell you that that I'm speaking only lies. But so I when I was first starting to write, I returned home and would go to the local Palo Alto YMCA, and I would play pickup basketball games in this lunchtime league. And there was this other fellow there who also has a shaved head who also played predominantly in the low post and who is also a bit of a bruiser. I will admit to uh my low post game is not gentle, but I thought his he he just took it over the top and we were there was a lot of shoving and insisting that there were fouls when there were not. And at some point I you know, I thought he just blatantly fouled me. He'll tell you the opposite is true that I fouled him, but at some point I just we get into this almost yelling match, and I'm like, who do you think you are? Who are you? <laughs> and he, you know, is not really paying attention. He's like, I'm Tad Williams or something, you know, in, in some context. And in the middle of this yelling match, I'm like, wait a minute. Are you the Tad Williams? <laughs> you know, the Tad Williams? Did you write the Dragon Boat Chair? And he looks at me and says, well, yeah, I did. And I'm like, that book meant a whole lot to me. <laughs> uh, and it was like man hugs all around. No, it was, Tad was like, well, that's nice, but, you know, I didn't foul you, and you're, you know, you're a whiny little man, (laughs) and for about a year longer, you know, we became friends, and I would always try to butter Tad up and be like, so, can I show you, like, uh, something I've written, you know, can I tell you about my fantasy idea, and he always was very polite, and kind of patted me on my shiny head, and said, you know, like, Blake, you know, I like you a lot, but, but no way, (laughs) I'm sorry, I just can't Not every fan, I can't read every fan and recommend everybody who's starting out on their way. And then kind of by hook and by crook on my own other methods, all of a sudden I started getting uh, agents asking me. And I had, had, I had two agents actually who said, yes, I'd like to represent you. And I was trying to decide between them. And I was looking at their, their client list, and actually one of them uh, is Tad's agent. And, uh, that day going to, ba- going to play basketball that day and, uh, uh, telling him so was, was probably one of the best of my life. So even though he wasn't going to read the, the book or anything like that, uh, all of a sudden his agent got, uh, was interested in me and then, it, then he would, he read a draft and was actually, you know, interested and he ended up writing a, a wonderful blurb for the book.
1: Are there other writers who've uh, helped you out along the way?
0: Uh, Robin, I mean, in terms of inspiration, Robin Hobb was uh, one of the earliest uh, kind of books that just kind of like, you know, f- I felt like the world was melting under me when I when I read her. And anything she writes, I love to get my hands on her work. I think she's fantastic. Ursula K. Le Guin, of course, I owe a tremendous debt to her. Uh, I, I don't know her, but um, her work. Literacy books. This idea of of true names and kind of a a sort of a magical language and being able to uh, modify the world by knowing the the true names for things, of course, uh, was one of the like the bedrock upon which I built my magic system.
1: Okay. Well, uh, Blake Charlton, thanks so much for joining us on Geeks Guide to the Galaxy.
0: Fantastic. It was a pleasure to talk to you guys.
1: And that was our interview. Uh, so thanks so much to Blake for joining us on the show. So um, when he was talking about how in in his world how mixing up one letter or getting one letter wrong can make the spell completely backfire and have horrible consequences, it was kind of reminding me of one of my all time favorite video games, uh, mm-hmm. which is King's Quest three. Did you ever ever play this one?
2: Uh, I'm not sure about three, but I've definitely played the King Quest series. So well in- possible.
1: In, uh, in 3, this is the one where you're, uh, you're sort of a teenage boy and you're, uh, you've been enslaved to an evil wizard. And so uh, you live at his house on top of this mountain. And he constantly just appears and tells you to do chores. And you're not allowed to enter certain rooms of the house. You're not allowed to leave the mountain. Then every once in a while, the wizard will go away on a voyage. And then you have to start ransacking the house. And you discover that there's this underground lab where he does all of his magic. And, you know, you realize that if you can just learn some magic, you'll be able to defeat him. But a lot of the spells require ingredients that aren't in the house. And so, you know, he'll go away on trips and then come back and go away. And while he's away, you have to sneak down into the valley and gather up ingredients and mix up magic spells and then have everything hidden, you know, hide all the magic stuff away and clean up everything before he gets back. And so it's just a really cool game dynamic where it's not like you're an adventurer going around killing monsters you have to really be sneaky and clever and and really think about what you're doing and be careful but the part that relates to what Blake was talking about is that when you get all these ingredients and you start mixing up the spells it's sort of there's sort of these complicated recipes for creating the spells and if you do anything wrong at all you die instantly Mm -hmm. and this is a you know a text parser game so if you misspell a word or something you know you die instantly and so when you go into the mode where you're gonna be preparing these spells it starts playing creepy music and just as a kid i was like oh man and you just die over and over and over again because you're a kid you don't know how to spell every word and Mm -hmm. you know you're just not that good at following directions and stuff but it would really um make you feel like you're really doing magic and when you finally got a new spell it wouldn't just be like in most games where you just go up a level and you have a new ability or something you you feel like you really went through an ordeal (laughs) to to acquire Mm -hmm. this new power it was making me think of all those those old games and how I really liked the text parser games. And, you know, um, Blake was talking about how much fantasy books helped him learn how to read because they really motivated him. And those old adventure games were just like the best tool I could imagine for learning how to read because there's a lot of text on the screen that you have to read and you have to type to interact with the world and you have to spell words right because if you say look under bridge and you misspell bridge, the game doesn't know what you're talking about and it just gives you an error message. And Mm -hmm. so I I mean I really learned so much from playing those games. And it kind of broke my heart when they stopped using the the text parser and went to the point and click interface. And Mm -hmm. you know, a little bit of the magic went out of the world (laughs) on that day. So so I mean I wonder like if if I don't really know like what games like eight year olds are playing today but i wonder if they have those same sorts of you know like i watch my like younger cousins playing mario kart or super smash brothers or something that look like fun but they don't seem to have any kind of real redeeming value you know mm-hmm. you
2: yeah, no, uh i mean I, I i think i must have learned a lot from those types of games as well because i i played a lot of them and uh i know um the ultimate games which we've talked about before um also use that sort of thing where you know you had to actually ask questions and you know use text to interact with the game But uh, And then there's also the just plain text-based adventure games like Zork, which is completely text, and you're just, like, interacting with a story, basically. Um, And actually, you know, my sister used to write those for me. Like, she would create a custom text-based adventure game for me, like, you know, on her TRS-80. But, uh, yeah, I mean, I think those things definitely help kids a lot. There's one game I know of currently that is uh, sort of fulfilling that same sort of need. There's a game on the Nintendo DS called Scribblenauts it's like a sort of adventure game, but you actually write words onto the screen and then like, it makes it appear and you can use it to like get through stages and stuff. And so like, for instance, um, like on Twitter, um, Deanna Hook was talking about her son who was playing scribble knot and, and he asked her how to spell zombie case, but he, he meant sarcophagus, <laughs> but, uh, and so, so she tells him how to spell sarcophagus. And so he puts it there and then he opens it and then a mummy comes out and like kills him. And so it's like, you know, <laughs> It, it does various different things like that in the game and so it's like, you know, just because you write something doesn't mean it's going to help you. And I'm like, why would he open the sarcophagus? That doesn't make it, that's bad.
1: Yeah, well, it's it's funny you should mention the your sister programming the text games for you, because you know, the first uh, text adventure game I ever played, it was just called Adventure. I think it was an iteration of an earlier game called Colossal Cave Adventure. But the story I heard was that there was a father and he really liked to go cave exploring and, um, he got divorced. And so he didn't see his daughter a lot. And so he wrote the adventure game. It was originally you could just explore this cave. And it was like this real cave system that he liked to explore. And so he could send a copy of this game to his daughter. And then she could kind of explore his favorite cave. Hmm.
2: That's awesome. No, when when you were saying that uh, Blake's description of the magic system reminded you of king's quest it's funny because uh um this is something that you're also a fan of uh at least to some degree but it reminded me of gummy bears the um the disney cartoon that was on like in the 80s i guess but there was a wizard on the show who he had like aphasia or other or or else he just spoke in malapropisms all the time or something i'm not sure what the disorder was but he he always like screwed up the order of his words you know i used to play D when i was a teenager a lot and uh there was a character in our group that uh, who's a wizard and his name was Aphasia,
1: which you know just as seems appropriately ironic. you know it sounds like from what Blake is describing that he's really worked it out very carefully that the magic is almost a science in his world that follows rules and things. and it seems to me that's a really interesting debate going on in fantasy about whether magic should follow rules or not. when, when I th- when I think of the the view that magic should follow rules, the biggest proponent that kind of comes to mind is Brandon Sanderson who I guess works out really detailed, complex magic systems for each of his, uh, his series and things. And I've heard him say that the reason he does that is because he doesn't want it to be... You know, One of the things that makes fiction interesting is that you can predict what's going to happen, is that there is foreshadowing and um, you know, a structure to the story. And you know you don't want it to be the case where your hero has been cornered in a dark alley and, and you're like, how is he going to get out of this? And then he just flies up to the roof and runs away and you're like, oh, I didn't know he could fly. If if the reader can't isn't given a, a chance to anticipate what the character is going to do, then it's, it's not as interesting. And I guess you have this problem with superheroes a lot is that the writers will kind of write themselves into a corner and the, they'll sort of invent some new power or some new application of a power to get the character out of that situation. And so the longer a superhero goes, the more and more power they accumulate until it's gotten to the point where you can't come up with anything to challenge them anymore Because they've become so powerful And so they have to reduce the amount of power That the character has And I guess they call this nerfing Nerfing the characters mm-hmm. When they sort of draw dial, dial back their power mm-hmm. So like in the original Superman movie Superman is apparently able to fly around the world the earth and like make time go backwards and mm-hmm. fix everything and, and obviously they they had to nerf him in <laughs> subsequent movies cuz that's just like well that's just way too powerful how can you possibly have any kind of story if superman can just make time go backwards and fix everything
2: yeah but no i mean speaking of uh having structure for magic i mean i think that's really essential to making something really interesting as a fantasy i mean i think that's one of the things i don't like about the harry potter books i mean i actually do quite enjoy them but i mean the magic system in the books it seems like they can just do whatever they want whenever they want. And there's no particular cost associated with anything. So I'm like, why don't they use magic all the time to do everything? Because there never seems to be any reason not to. I mean, I think a good magic system will have a a sophisticated system for having there be some cost associated with every action, you know, every, every magical action you take, you know, you're going to lose something, you know, it's either going to be like, you know, you'll lose some bit of your life or, you know, you have a, a limited amount of mana or something that you can use at any one time and you have to recharge or something, you know? Um, I mean, it's like, there's got to be something that prevents you from just using magic all the time because otherwise the world would just be chaos. Fantasy without rules just is very uninteresting.
1: Okay, well, let me play devil's advocate here for a second because, yeah. you know, I have, there are some pretty heavy hitters on the other side of this argument. So like, first of all, we would have George R. R. Martin, mm-hmm. right? And so he says, you know, that he doesn't like it. I kind of like what you're saying is in, in Harry Potter that he doesn't like it when, you know, wizards are just always throwing fireballs at each other. And if magic is as predictable and rules-based as science, then it just becomes mm. as mundane as science in a sense. You know, I mean, it's, if you've never seen a light bulb before, it's really cool that you can just cause illumination. Mm. But if you could just flip a switch and every single time the light comes on, whether it's magic or technology doing that, if, if that's the kind of the nature of it, it just ceases to be wondrous. And so like in his Song of Ice and Fire series, he makes the magic really rare. And every time something magical happens, it's something really unexpected and um, unique. Every single thing is a, um, a, a sort of subversion of reality. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, I, China Mieville has a really good Example that he uses, where he says, in uh, he's talking about the uh, Call of Cthulhu role playing game, uh, based on the the horror world of H.P. Lovecraft. And in Lovecraft's world, there's this evil god called Cthulhu, and the whole point of this series is that Cthulhu is beyond comprehension. Any attempt to, to even try to understand what he is will drive you insane, and he's just he's just so far beyond, you know, human uh, quantification. Uh, he's just on another plane of existence. And then you look in the rule book for the role-playing game, and it says, mm-hmm. you know, Cthulhu, 50 feet tall, strength, 100. And it just, it totally misses the point that it's just, you know, it's trying to quantify, it, it actually is quantifying this thing, mm-hmm. that the whole point is that it's supposed to be unquantifiable. And yeah. so then the last example I, I, that sort of sprang to mind is uh, in the the ending of uh, Nightmare on Elm Street. In, in Nightmare on Elm Street, there's this uh, freaky evil entity named Freddy Krueger who comes to kids in their dreams and kills them. And if Freddy kills you in your dreams you die in the real world. And so once the kids start uh, realizing this they start trying to stay awake for as long as they can to try to figure out how they can save themselves because they know if they fall asleep Freddy's going to get them. And so then at the end it seems like they've defeated Freddy and everything's fine and they all get into a car to go to the mall or something and then the car is like a Freddy Krueger car and it locks them in and drives off with them and they're all screaming. And there was no possible way you could anticipate that this is going to happen and it's kind of it's kind of dumb in a way but it's also kind of unsettling i've never been able to forget that scene because it doesn't follow any rules and that's mm-hmm. scary you know that you can't just be like oh well freddy is a level 10 monster so he has these abilities
2: you see that and you're like oh wow that was scary and awesome but then you th- if you think about it you're like well why didn't he just do that before? I mean, why was he, why was he fooling around with all this dream stuff before? If he could just, you know, create this evil Freddy Krueger car and, and get them whenever he wanted to, you know what I mean? That, mm-hmm. I mean, that's what I was getting at with, uh you know, talking about the, the having limitations or costs on magic. I mean, as far as Martin is concerned, like, I mean, there's so little magic in the, in that world. Like, I mean, you can read like those books and be like, and, and you can get to the end and be like, Oh wait, yeah, I guess it is fantasy. I mean, I guess there's some magic in there, but it's like, it just feels like a, like an alternate, you know, historical series for the most part, you know what I mean? So it, it's like, that's another way of making magic work without having the, these heart you know, strictly defined rules. But I mean, I think if you have a heavy, like a, a high volume magic, World, like I think you really have to have rules in place, otherwise it just gets to be ridiculous, like I was saying, where there's nothing to stop people from just you know using magic all the time and then and then it just doesn't make any sense if you think about it I mean not that that ever stops Hollywood movies from ever doing things that, like that i mean that's that's half my problem with uh movies a lot of times is that you know it's like, oh wow, yeah, that was cool, but then when you stop and think about it and you actually you know, think about the actions that lead lead up to all the different decisions. It's like, well, this doesn't make any sense because they could have just subverted the whole movie by doing this, this, or this, you know? It all depends on how much of a suspension of disbelief I guess you're willing to give uh, the work. But, I mean, you know, there's, there's situations where, like, with Harry Potter, I mean, you know, even though it has that issue, I still am able to enjoy it and have fun. It's just that I think it limits it from being a great work of fantasy.
1: Well, I think another issue a lot of times with fantasy worlds that have magic in them is that they look just like our world, except with magic. And mm-hmm. the author hasn't really taken into consideration, well, wait, if magic existed, it wouldn't just look like our world with magic. It would change everything about mm-hmm. the world. Um, so an example, like you were talking about Dungeons & Dragons. You know, in Dungeons & Dragons, there are big castle, you know, medieval-style castles all over the, the landscape. Mm-hmm. Because in our world, it's really, if you want to keep people out, it's really good to build some tall walls, because then people have trouble mm-hmm. getting over them. But mm-hmm. in the Dungeons & Dragons world, every level 7 ranger or whatever gets a flying mm-hmm. mount. And, you know, every <laughs> fairly low-level wizard can cast transmute stone to mud, mm-hmm. right? So, I mean, how effective is a castle going to be when even fairly low-level characters can go right through a wall or right over a wall? And right, so, right, right. you know, so would, would anyone really go to the trouble of building castle walls in the first place?
2: Mm-hmm. And does it make sense that the people ruling the world are not all wizards? Mm-hmm. You know, because like, you know, why would there ever be a court wizard? <laughs> you know, why would, why would a wizard ever put up with, uh you know, the ruler unless he was also a powerful wizard. And in which case, why would he need a court wizard? Yeah. So no, it doesn't, it doesn't really make sense if you think about it. And again, it's like, you know, you can still have fun in those situations, but you know, it doesn't really make sense if you break it down. Although at least D&D does have limitations put on power. You can only cast a number, a certain number of spells per day. And, uh, you know you have to go up in levels before you can attempt certain spells you have to you know you have to be a certain level of experience but uh, yeah i know i mean it's it's not going to make sense if you really really analyze it i mean i think um uh, what blake is talking about and what uh, what the sort of move, the movement in fantasy is is called is hard fantasy so like if that's the sort of magic system you're interested in if you look up hard fantasy authors that's just going to be the sort of thing you would find so like Sean williams is another author recently who has a, who had a series came out that is uh, you know deemed hard fantasy
1: but i mean speaking of you know the world being changed if magic was real i mean this is something i really wonder about is you know you have these these people who are like burning harry potter books because they don't want their kids getting mixed up in witchcraft Mm -hmm. and at least the impression i get is that they they think that witchcraft is actually real and Mm -hmm. efficacious and i i sort of want to ask ask them you know if if you think like people can actually cast spells in our world and they work, like wouldn't that change everything about our world? I mean, wouldn't you just go on YouTube and it would be like nothing mm-hmm. but videos of like angry teenagers summoning demons in their basements, you know, and mm-hmm. like wouldn't every evil corporation have a whole team of witches, you know, like they have big teams of lawyers now just mm-hmm. to, to do what they want and like like you were saying, wouldn't wizards rule the world, you know, wouldn't every you know, wouldn't every uh ruler of every uh sort of evil country or, you know, be, be some sort of uh, witch or something.
2: Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think that's why a lot of times, um, the fact that wizards exist is always like a secret, you know, like, so for instance, in Harry Potter, the wizarding world exists, but in secret of most of the population, you know, and they always have to, they have these rules about, you know, not letting muggles see you do magic.
1: But I mean, how could you, I don't know, how could you possibly keep something like that secret? I mean, if they're, I mean, because they have magic. Yeah, but I mean, you know, they're like, always like fl- they're always like flying around in their car, and doesn't anybody ever get this on video or something? You know, <laughs> I mean, everyone's got a camera on their phone and everything. You know,
2: that's what men in black are for.
1: <laughs> but actually, you know, speaking of, of wizards ruling the worlds, you know, I had a couple examples of kind of interesting portrayals of magic in fiction that I wanted to mention. And so the first one is uh, a book called Illusion by Paul Volsky. and so this is it's kind of the French Revolution uh, retold. You know, in in a in a fantasy world and so in this world the ruling class are all people who have a sort of hereditary ability to do magic and so um, a, a young woman upper class young woman goes to the capital and at a party she sees you know a, a wizard sort of cast an illusion spell and it's it's just this really kind of sad pitiful illusion spell and everyone claps and they're all amazed because this is the most impressive thing they've seen uh, in years and she realizes how far magic has fallen because these people of all just kind of become lazy, uh, you know, sort of indolent aristocrats. And so then, you know, that obviously sets sets the stage for a big revolution. Um, but one thing I've never forgotten from this book is that there are three almost robot machines that they keep in the palace uh, that are called the Sentience, except nobody's been able to get them to work for years. And so they've kind of jokingly become known as the Stupefactions and some, somebody is able to get them working again. And one of them is this really scary, I, I remember it being sort of a sphinx type thing. And, you know, all the upper class people are trying to sneak out of the city. And um, so this, this sphinx sort of thing sort of sits above the gate and it can read people's minds. And so it always knows if anyone passing through the gate is a uh, you know, an, uh, an upper class person trying to escape. And so what they start doing is they start uh, drugging themselves so that they're unconscious, and so then it can't uh, read their minds. And it's just this really memorable scene where the this the this creature is just is looking at this card and it just knows there's something not quite right about it, but it just can't just doesn't know what's what's wrong. But it's because there's somebody who's unconscious, you know. But they're just the the magical machine is just picking up just sort of slight mental vibrations.
2: Well, you know, um, one example that I always liked uh, of magic systems um, is also something that you were fond of. But the the Robert Asprin uh, myth series, yeah. uh, which we've talked about on the show before, I think, in that um, the magicians, they use uh, force lines. So it's like they sort of like there's like these sort of invisible power lines that uh, that run across in a grid like throughout the world or whatever. And so like you as a magician, you would draw power from these power lines. And so like if you're far away from one or whatever, you might not be able to access it and so forth.
1: Yeah, and one thing I really like about those books, and you see it right from the beginning in, in the first book, Another Fine Myth, is that all magic is done with your mind. It's all just mental effort. But wizards still do all sorts of rituals and things just to impress people. And so uh, at the very beginning, um, you know, the, the, the characters need some money. And so, uh, so one of the characters Az, asks, uh, you know, one of the other characters, Skeev, is there any money lying around here? And Skeev says, uh, well, there is, but it's all cursed. And and Az just kind of laughs and explains that this is just a story that wizards make up to to keep people from stealing their stuff. That there's no such <laughs> things as curses. When when I was uh, into Dungeons and Dragons, when I was kind of a teenager, the world I was most into was called Dark Sun, and it's it's basically um, you know it's sort of a Mad Max version of, of Middle Earth. So it's a world in which uh, there's kind of two kinds of magic, sort of like the the light side of the forest and the dark side of the forest, and the dark side of the forest kind of magic is called defiling. And it actually sucks energy out of the, the world around you and, and sort of destroys life. And then there's sort of good magic, which is more of a give and take and, and doesn't destroy life, but uh, is, is slower and harder. And so you can either choose to be a defiler or a preserver. And if you're a defiler, you'll go up in levels a lot faster and, and gain powers a lot faster. But know that you're kind of a bad person but so basically the whole world is just this big wasteland because so much defiling magic has been done by so many people over so many centuries that it all, you know, it's just basically destroyed the ecology of this entire world that they wrote novels uh, in this world. And I was reading one of them when I was a kid on a day where I was homesick from school and I had just the most horrible fever you could possibly imagine. And I was actually delusional. Hmm. And uh, in this book uh, it turns out that there's a, you know, there are, gladiatorial combat is, is popular in this world, and it turns out that one of the evil sorcerer kings who rule this world has a plot to cast a spell that involves you know thousands of human sacrifices, so he's just going to lock everyone into the lock the whole audience into one of his gladiatorial arenas and, and kill them all, and the heroes get wind of this, and so they have to try to stop him. And I can remember just, like, like lying on the floor, just sweating, and, and being completely delusional and thinking, you know, that I had to get up because I had to go hmm. save the world from this evil sorcerer king and and that was actually really cool and so i've often thought since then that there must be some kind of a market for you know some sort of drug or something that could put you into a delusional state so you would actually think that the book or the movie you were watching was really happening you know while it was going on
2: get on that science <laughs> you know that's uh i mean that dark sun example is a uh, is an excellent example of what i was talking about with the you know having the cost for magic i mean and that's a really really cool cost you know that uh, you're either destroying the world or else you just have like sort of weaker magic that is more in harmony but um this sort of ties in with the sort of not too subtle environmental you know message of of the setting but uh well, you know you mentioned star wars too and i mean that in of itself is a perfectly good example of a magic system i mean you know the the light side and the dark side is you know whether or not the force is technically magic it sure seems like magic i mean because if you're Talking about Star Wars with any sort of strict definitions, I mean, it's not really science fiction. I mean, it's fantasy that uses the furniture of science fiction, so it sort of looks like science fiction, but it's really not, since not much of it really makes sense by any scientific standpoint, and uh, certainly the Force doesn't.
1: Uh, I read an analysis once of the Star Wars movies, which essentially argued that each new Force power that is introduced is just a plot convenience, you know, that obviously there was no system from the beginning. Earlier we were talking about power just sort of getting out of control and uh, having to be nerfed and stuff. And so I guess there's been a big issue in the Star Wars Mm -hmm. universe where Yoda says size doesn't make any difference. As far as the Force is concerned, you know, a rock is the same as a spaceship. And so the logical extension of that is that you should just be able to, if a Star Destroyer is attacking a planet, you should just be able to shove it back out into space with just one person using the Force, right? Because it's just like you doing a rock, right? Mm -hmm. And this completely unbalances (laughs) The whole world. So another uh, another example of magic I've always thought was kind of cool is in uh, Roger Zelazny's Amber Chronicles. In the first series, it's established that the characters can draw pictures. You know, if if you have a special ability, you can draw a picture of a person or a place, and then use that image uh, to contact that person or to step through into that place. And so, in between the time he wrote that series and, and the second series, computers started uh, you know becoming more common. And so he kind of, I guess, started thinking about, well, how could a computer interface with this ability? And so one of the characters is kind of a computer science student, and so he makes an AI kind of machine that can use computer graphics to just draw hundreds of these images in a second. And and this gives it all sorts of uh, amazing powers, and it becomes very, very dangerous.
2: Yeah, you know, um, Jeremiah Tolbert has a a series of stories that he's written. The first one was in the Shimmer Pirate issue uh, that I edited, but it's about a world where magic has been copyrighted by this, uh, large group of powerful wizards, um, sort of like the, uh, RIA, um, you know, the recording industry of America. And so they basically copyrighted all the magic. And so, you know, the, the, protagonist of the story is like a guy who pirates, you know, magic spells on the internet. Um, and it's sort of, it's like this just great blend of technology and, and magic that I really like. And I always kind of wonder, like in like in Harry Potter, for instance, I always like I'm like, do they have email? Because like, why are Hmm. they sending owls to each other? They can just send email. Come on. I mean, that it would make sense though, like if like you know, as if you were saying like, well, would the world really look like the world that we know if you know magic existed? And so like, I could totally understand if email did not exist because there was magic. Because like, why would you bother inventing something like email if you could just magic a message to somebody? But uh, you know, that doesn't that doesn't seem to be the case. It's just that there's no mention almost, of any technology. I mean, they do mention computers at some point, but, you know, those wizards, they never send email or anything. It's really weird. Mm. Or, or text each other. Come on, they're <laughs> kids.
1: You know, Blake uh, described Yale as kind of like Hogwarts with more beer. Mm-hmm. And uh, that was making me think of, of this recent book by Lev Grossman called The Magicians, which it's, it's basically like Harry Potter goes to college. I think that's a really great <laughs> premise. And I, I really I really enjoyed this book a lot. This sort of the idea is that you know, sometimes you'll you'll just think that something is going to be so cool, like some new, uh, you know, some summer camp or some new job or something. And then you get there and you're kind of like, eh, I don't know about this. It's not quite, it's not at all how I thought it would be. Is it good? Is it bad? I don't know. And so it kind of takes that idea and applies it to magic school and to, uh, you know, going to a magical realm uh, where, you know, it's it's not quite what you expected. And sometimes it just seems like a big disaster. And You're like, oh, why did I ever come here? And but then, you know, it's it's sort of it's it's much more uh, ambivalent uh, than most uh, stories about going to a fantasy world tend to be. And I guess the, the book, from what I've read, has elicited fairly polarized reactions. But uh, I, I really I really got a, a kick out of it. And I think especially if you're, you know, like in high school or in college, that would be the perf- I wish I could have read it back uh, when I was that age.
2: Uh, so one of the other things I wanted to talk about uh, that Blake brought up, uh, because he's a doctor and, and because, you know, his story Endosymbiont uh, is basically like a medical science fiction story. Uh, I kind of wanted to talk about um, medicine in science fiction and uh, the sort of subgenre of uh, not science fiction uh, called medical thrillers. Because, you know, I grew up reading a lot, a bunch of medical thrillers before I got into reading science fiction, and they were kind of a gateway for me. You know, so Robin Cook is like the the first author I sort of, latched onto in the medical thrillers, you know, genre, but, uh, you know, he's a doctor and he was, he's just writing, you know, taking medical scenarios and making an adventure, you know, sort of a, a thriller story out of it, you know, so there's like a murder murder mysteries going on and stuff. But uh, the one most relevant to uh, science fiction fans, I think is, uh, he has this book called chromosome six, um, in which scientists are somewhere in Africa. They're using bonobo apes to grow, human organs in them like to serve as transplantation purposes like for rich people so like instead of waiting on a organ donor list like you know you could pay this uh group of scientists to clone you an organ and grow it inside the body of a bonobo and uh and then they would you know make the transplant and all that there's a lot of crossover with this in science fiction otherwise like uh there's a robert j sawyer novel called the terminal experiment which is one of the ways one of the books that helped me get into science fiction really because um it was this new book that came out right around the time I was reading all these medical thrillers and sort of tentatively um, wading into science fiction. And uh, here was this new book that came out and it had a caduceus on the cover. And I was like, hey, I know what that is. That's a medical thing. <laughs> so in, in the terminal experiment, um, it's sort of, it, it's about a guy trying to prove that life after death exists or not. And so it has this sophisticated computer experiment in which he has these three different simulations and one of them is a control. And then one of them sort of tries to simulate life after death. And one of them, uh, you know, tries to simulate something else, but then it's, it's determined that one of these simulations somehow commits a murder. Like, you know, it's a computer simulation, but it somehow gets out into the internet and through the internet, it somehow kills somebody. But uh, it was like a, this really cool, like, you know, murder mystery trying to figure out like, you know, what happened and who done it. And, um it was really interesting because it deals with all all these sort of philosophical questions about um religion and and the soul and life after death and that kind of thing so for a skeptical uh you know a skeptic interested in uh, in medicine um it was it was a really good gateway to help me get into science fiction more and and you know one of the other things that i i pursued uh alongside the medical thrillers or um there's a series by Patricia Cornwell um, about uh, a medical examiner called uh, named Case Carpeta, And it's, she has this series of, of books that were quite popular, but um, you know, a medical examiner is like a, is, is a coroner or, you know, they, they do autopsies uh, on murder victims and that kind of thing. And they uh, sort of help uh, police investigate um, suspicious deaths. And uh, so, I mean, that, that's another uh, sort of tangentially related to science fiction just because it's like so science oriented. Um, I mean, I think a lot of uh, detective stuff sort of, is uh, appealing to science fiction fans a lot because of that. I mean, one of the other things uh, to do with med- medicine and science fiction is there's actually a, a pretty good tradition in science fiction of blending those two things. Like um, James White um, has a series of novels called the sector general uh, series began, I think with hospital station in the sixties um, and there was 12 books or so, but it sort of follows this uh it's sort of a Star Trek-like situation where, you know, you, know, you have the interstellar federation and, uh, you know, you're flying around on spaceships and going to space stations and it's it follows this doctor. So there's that. And then also, um, you know, SLVL has a series called Stardock, which is sort of along the same lines.
1: But when you were talking about sort of the similarities, in a sense, between mystery and science fiction, I, I really agree with that. And I do think that they appeal to a lot of the same impulses in readers. But um, I mean, one thing I've noticed with mysteries... I think a problem for a mystery that's presented to you as a mystery is that that kind of gives too much away, right? If you know going into it that there's that one of these people is going to be the murderer, uh, then really no matter who it is, you're not going to be that surprised, right? I mean, once you've once you've read enough of them, you you kind of get the get the idea. And one thing I've noticed is that when you tell people, oh, this movie has a great twist at the end, mm-hmm. that usually they're able to guess what it is, you know, within the first five minutes or something. That most mm-hmm. good twists are so implicit in the premise that if you know a big twist is coming, you it's easy to guess it, right? And oh, that yeah, a, no, I totally agree. And that a, that a movie, in order for a movie with a big twist to succeed, you have to not know that there's a big twist in it. And so like a mystery story kind of telegraphs, you know, that there's going to be a surprise at the end uh, or that mm-hmm. it's going to try to, you know, trick you at the end. And so, I mean, one thing I like about about science fiction is that you can have a sort of puzzle story where it is a kind of mystery, but you don't realize it's a mystery until you're already, you know, like, what is the aliens? You know, the aliens might have some strange motivation. And once you figure it out, you're like, oh, now I understand what's mm-hmm. been going on. Or, or, you know, time travel was involved. And you're like, oh, I see how the time travel explains everything. But I didn't know that there was time travel. I didn't know mm-hmm. that that was something I was supposed to try to figure out.
2: Actually, that's something that uh, Jack McDevitt is really good at, if, if you like that sort of uh, story. He has a series following the character Alex Benedict. Um, It doesn't really have a series name, but Alex Benedict is the protagonist. But that series is explicitly like you know just a blend of mystery and science fiction, and it's like you know far future spaceship sort of science fiction, but it's also a mystery. Uh, But his other his other um, major series, the the Omega series, sort of deals with what you were just saying about with the aliens being involved in. So it's another sort of far future spaceship thing, but there's also these these weird aliens that are like doing things that people like the humans don't really understand. And um, as you progress further along into the series it it is a really big mystery like what's going on
1: and the, the last thing i wanted to talk about is blake was saying a little bit how it's actually kind of a modern invention people sitting in a corner by themselves reading a book and how for most of human history reading or storytelling was much more of a social activity and uh i feel like in a lot of ways that human beings are evolved to live in tribes on the african savannah you know, and we've changed the world completely from that in ways to make it more comfortable and convenient for ourselves. But in, in a, a way, we've uh, left behind a lot of things that we're just innately suited for. And so, I mean, this is something that really strikes me. Uh, you know, my, my family are big backpackers, and so we, we, you know, we'll spend weeks out in the woods hiking around. And when you're just sitting around with everybody around the campfire at night, there's just something about that that, that, that just feels right. And that, you know, it's, it's just not the same as sitting around the TV, you know, and everybody telling stories and you sort of get to know everybody who's on the trip with you. And, um, you know, we always meet lots of people who want to be writers and there's just far more people who want to be writers and who are really good at it than the market can possibly accommodate. But when you think about it, I mean, the way we evolved in tribes of 100 people or so Probably each tribe of 100 people needed, you know, five or seven people who were really good storytellers to keep the tribe motivated and, and going and to preserve history and, and stuff. And so, you know, that works out to a, a certain fairly high percentage of the population who's just kind of programmed, I would say, with this storytelling instinct. But with mass produced media, you know, mm-hmm. Stephen King can essentially provide this storytelling for the entire world, you know, if uh, mm-hmm. if necessary. And I think that's kind of, you know, it's it's great in a way, but it's sad in a way too. It just sort of leaves a lot of people with this with this kind of impulse, but no outlet for it.
2: Maybe someone should go back in time and kill Gutenberg before he invented the printing press.
1: (laughs) Well, I mean, I've I've kind of been hopeful a little bit that that the internet might alleviate this to some extent. That there will, you know, we have seen sort of this some, uh, you know, sort of evolution of more niche things and you Mm -hmm. know online community communities and things, and it seems to be more and more that people aren't reading bestsellers, but they're reading stuff by friends of friends of friends. You know, Andy Warhol famously said that in the future, everyone will be famous for 15 minutes. And there's this joke now that on the internet, everyone is famous to 15 people. Hmm. And I think that's actually a good state of affairs if, if we can get to that. I mean, you know, right now, celebrities have millions of people worshiping them and they couldn't care less. And, you know, most people, I think, would be perfectly happy with a... Enthusiastic audience of fifteen people, or or something, and so if if you know if we can just sort of have more <laughs> kind of attention equality, I think everyone will, would be a lot happier. You know, because I I certainly like reading. I, I I wish you know as a writer that there were more sort of social outlets for me to just read my stories to audiences. I mean, I do it sometimes, but certainly nowhere near as often as I was as I would like. And it's just hard to, you know, <laughs> you know people are like, oh, I have to watch Lost. You know, it's hard to like hmm. get people to come to stuff and uh you know like you could go to a writer's group but then you know you're only interacting with other writers and then at the end they don't say hey that was great dave thanks for a fun evening Mm -hmm. they say okay here's everything you did wrong and here's what i think you should fix you know Mm -hmm. and certainly that can be valuable but it would be nice to just have an audience just an appreciative audience you know
2: well you should go to more conventions Dave you know you can get a reading at every convention you go to of course then you're paying a lot of money to uh, you know fulfill that need of yours mm-hmm. to read to people
1: well I guess, I guess now I have a podcast so yeah. uh, you know if more people would post comments if 15 people would post a comment <laughs> I, would, I, would be, I would be happy
2: that would make me happy as well although I, I, I would honestly I would hope for more than 15 <laughs> I, uh, I guess I'm just greedy that way
1: and that was our show Thanks, everyone, for joining us. And be sure to join us next week when we'll interview Carrie Vaughn, author of the best-selling Kitty Norville series about a werewolf who runs a radio phone-in show for supernatural creatures. See you then.
2: The Geek's Guide to the Galaxy is a production of Tor.com. For this episode's show notes, or to subscribe to this podcast, visit tour.com and click on podcasts. For more information about your hosts, visit JohnJosephAdams.com or DavidBarrCurrently.com. Music and voiceover produced by Dead 9 Entertainment. If you've enjoyed this program, tell your friends. If you didn't enjoy it, tell no one. Thank you for listening.